Good evening, everyone. Thank you so much for coming. My name is Meredith Walters, and I direct the programs and exhibitions here at Brooklyn Public Library. Now let's get down to business. Let me introduce you to Joel Whitney. He writes on art and politics. He's a co-founding editor of Guernica Magazine, which is a terrific online magazine. I hope that you will uh, look up. Uh, recent works include a book review on Cambodia for the New York Times and an essay on the Western canon and multiculturalism for a world policy journal. His reporting on the U.S. role in Burma has appeared in the New Republic and in the San Francisco Chronicle magazine. Other work includes a book review of Ayan Hersi Ali for the Village Voice, short, short pieces on terrorism, torture, and Jose Padilla for the New York magazine, interviews on Burma's sanctions and Obama's soft power for Courier, Courier International in France, criticism, poetry, neurolit, and an interview on the death of neoconservatism for the San Francisco Chronicle. He's also a poet in addition to all of this hard thinking that he does. Not that poetry's not hard thinking, but, um, but he's, and he's also on Twitter. So Joel Whitney will be interviewing uh, Mr. Jagielski today. Wojciech Jagielski is a journalist who specializes in Africa, Central Asia, the Transcaucasus, and the Caucasus. He's been witness to some of the most important political events at the end of the 20th century and is a permanent observer of developments in Afghanistan. He is the author of A Good Place to Die, the result of several years of travel to the Caucasus in the era of the Soviet Union's collapse and of the emergence of new independent states. Praying for Rain, the bestseller chronicling Afghan regimes, and The Night Wanderers, a book about child soldiers from northern Uganda. Please welcome both of our guests. Welcome to Brooklyn. Thank you very much. It's an honor to be here. And I must excuse myself just from the very beginning for my English, which is more Polish than American. But well, it's anyway. better than <laughs> most of our Polish. So. <laughs> I'm sure. Um, before we start, I'm ready, I'm, ready to, I'm ready to jump right in and, and test your English. But before we start, um, let me give the pen the pen uh, welcome. Um, as you know, as you heard from the long version of my bio, uh, my name is Joel Whitney, and on behalf of the 3,400 writers, translators, and editors of Pen, it's a great pleasure to welcome you all to the eighth annual Pen World Voices Festival. With that grand context, um, I'd like to mostly focus on your on your new book about Uganda, the Night Wanderers, um, which you may know is, uh, has, has been given a, a new sort of boost, of some new attention from this, Uganda. from this Kony 2012 video, which I'm sure you've seen. Yeah. Have, you, have, you, have you taken a critical look? Have you watched the whole thing? Not the whole thing, but of course I'm aware of this video and the phenomenon. Um, I remember when I was, the day that the video appeared, I was called uh, by one of the Polish TV station and they wanted me to come to comment uh, on this campaign. And I was so surprised, I didn't, want, I didn't know what to say and what kind of comments I should give them. Uh, I was very surprised that this video and this campaign uh, started right now, not five years ago, not in five years ago. Uh, and I refused. I said that I do not have anything to say. I do not want to comment things which are happening in, uh, on the Internet, in this unreal world, that I'm not part of it. Uh, but then I thought that uh, 
It's not about the internet and not about the invisible children, it's about Uganda. And even not about Uganda, it's about the LRA, a very unique uh, guerrilla army. And it, would, it was worth to say something, so I regret that I refused uh, to come to, to, to TV. Then, uh, when I heard about the campaign, when I saw the film, of course, I, I have two kinds of feeling. First of all, first was to be a critical, because I saw, uh, I find it very naive, and very, very noble, very human, but, but naive. And uh, not all information which were coming from the film were 100% true today. Uh, but on the other hand, I thought that uh, that it was an uh, idea and campaign very worth to support because uh, it targeted criminal and the criminal should be punished and he's still free and I don't know, he's not awaiting punishment but I hope that the punishment awaits him and if this campaign any in any sense uh, would help to capture Joseph Kony, the creator and the leader of Lord's Resistance Army, it would be only good. So from the heart I support 100%. Uh, from my mind I would say that I see some minuses. Uh, but these minuses have uh, very little uh, meaning comparing with this main idea. Well, um, I don't mean to pick on what you said earlier, but I'm going to have to call you out on your claim that you're not good at English because you just you will see you, you will see something <laughs> really eloquent when you when you flipped around he's not waiting for justice but I hope justice awaits him that 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 shows that you you were being humble um, but but just to frame this properly how many people have died in the the sort of tide conflicts that Uganda has undergone over the past decades? I think that nobody knows real numbers. We can say 10,000, 20,000, 50,000, 100,000. Probably all the numbers are good enough. Uh, the problem with this war in Uganda was that uh, it was a very local war. Uh, only two countries were interested in involved in this war, Sudan and Uganda. And it was the border war. So. The war was important for northern part of Uganda, but not for Kamp Kamp Kampala, the capital of Uganda. Not that much important. The same in Sudan. Sudan was supporting Lord Resistance Army and Joseph Kony not because they share the same ideas, uh, but because Sudan wanted to harm Uganda. And they wanted to harm Uganda because Uganda was supporting Sudanese uh, guerrillas fighting Khartoum government. So nobody cared about that war in northern Uganda. It was not even the regional war. Uh, there is nothing strategic in this war. Uh, nobody was endangered by this war. Uh, so nobody really counted the numbers. And northern Uganda is the poorest part of this country. And it suffered a lot. I think that, well, last year, Uganda suffered a lot during recent history. But northern part of Uganda suffered maybe not the most, but uh, is a recent, the last victim of the wars that were happening in Uganda in the 70s, in the 80s, and in the 90s. Uh, so the people in northern Uganda were trying to survive. They were not caring that much about the statistics. And I think that they didn't, they did, they didn't realize uh, what is really going on. 
even in their own country, in their own districts, and how important it is, how big it is. They were trying to survive, and that was the only thing that really mattered. Let me try to provide some context here because um, as is probably entirely evident to the audience here, we're two white guys, once again, weighing in on Africa's problems. And um, you mentioned Sudan and some of the first events that my magazine that I work on, Guernica, uh, involved itself with, you know, partnered with Penn on were, were events involving Sudan. And we got very concerned about this problem, and then I read Mahmoud Mamdani. Have you, have yeah, you met yeah. Mamdani? Have you no, unfortunately not. Mm -hmm. Have you read his book, yeah. Saviors, Saviors and Survivors? It was an interesting premise because what he was trying to do was to essentially say that Africa and Africans are clearly better equipped than Western outsiders, like the makers of the video Coney 2012, to solve their own problems, even if from the outside it seems like they're having trouble in some cases. But what he also went on to say was that the Save Darfur Coalition was a huge attempt to change the subject from Iraq. And he looked at the numbers of the dead that Save Darfur were posting, and he showed at one point that it was going up and down like a flagpole. Eric, ba Eric Bates was one of the, I think that was his name, no. Eric, um, forgetting his last name, at Smith College. A literature professor who turned Darfur expert, and at one point it was up to 500,000, and then it was down to 100,000, and the numbers just kept switching. And Mamdani compared those numbers to the, to the deaths in Iraq, and from that he made this thesis that the Save Darfur movement, whether intended to be or not, really sapped the, the juices from the anti-Iraq war movement in the United States. So, I want to ask you a little bit about your motivation for doing the book, which I understand came out of newspaper articles. Um, but first, let's talk a little bit about this book in the context of your other book so that it doesn't seem like I'm placing you in a suspicious context that Mamdani Mom might, uh, that segue might imply. Um, tell me about your books and whether you are someone who just loves misery you, uh, you, you, you love it, it, it makes you feel uh, uh, there's meaning if you're reporting on this stuff. I mean, you've, you've covered stuff much closer to home. So tell me about your books and the order that, just, just a, a few sentences, yeah. and then let's get into the All right, the my books are a result of my journalism. And I decided to be a journalist uh, when I got interested in Africa. I, I, I cannot say what were the reasons that I was interested in Africa. I was too young, maybe, um, but I wanted to write about Africa. When I joined my first job, Polish press agency, I got an offer that I could not refuse. They told me that I can write, of, car of course, about Africa, but Africa was never a priority for any Polish media. So uh, they sent me to former Soviet Union, and they told me that in Soviet Union I could observe I will be able to observe the processes that Richard Kapuściński observed in Africa in the 60s. It means decolonialization. It was the mid-80s, so the word decolonialization and Soviet Union it was difficult to join. <laughs> but anyway, I was sent to the former Soviet Union. So that's how Caucasus and Transcaucasus came. To, they, they started to be my interest. When I realized that uh, Central Asia, which was part of the Soviet Union, is only the part of the Central Asia, I went to Afghanistan. And I 
I, 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 I get addicted to Afghanistan for many years. I spent all 90s uh, traveling and writing about Afghanistan. So now you have the areas of my interest. And my first books were, were about trans Transcaucasus and uh, Caucasus because I spent first years of my journalism over there. Then came Afghanistan and finally Africa. I wrote my first book about Africa is Uganda, Night, Night Wanderers. Uh, a new book of mine is gonna be published in one week in Poland, again about South Africa. And you're right, I agree with uh, your Sudanese uh, friend that it's strange that I wrote a book, for example, about the transformation in South Africa, political and social transformation, and not why not about Polish transformation, <laughs> which was more important for me, for us. I would say that it was my choice. I decided to be a foreign correspondent. I didn't want to write about Poland. Uh, it was easy choice because in the 80s, when we were the communist country, uh, writing about Poland and politics in Poland, it was not the job for the journalist. Mm -hmm. It was the job for the politician, for the activist. So uh, if I wanted to be a journalist, the only area open to me was to be a foreign correspondent. Sure. And that's why Africa came. Well, let me praise one thing that you did in the book. Um, in, the, in the reaction to the Coney 2012 video, uh, Teju Cole wrote in The Atlantic a piece that criticized this Western impulse to save places like Africa. And he called he, the title of the piece was The White Savior Industrial Complex. And he was critical of this notion of distracting the distracting the local population from from our problems, our corruption, our war in Iraq, um, and and pointing outside. And you're doing that in a slightly different context. You're there reporting for a newspaper, and presumably you're there to inform the Polish public about what's going on in the world. And I don't think anyone can be critical of that. But you what what you do masterfully. And I think the second section of the book, you point to this, uh, you're very critical of your own profession in the scene where you're talking about uh, the foreign journalists interviewing all the local journalists basically to exploit them and to steal their knowledge. So talk about that scene a little bit for, for, for people who haven't read the book. Well, yeah, but it's a basic truth about the journalism that we are using other journalists. If you come to Poland to do a research, first thing you would do, you would try to call Polish journalists to, to help you understand, to, to, to help you contact someone. I would do the same coming to uh, New Mexico and writing a piece about Billy the Kid and Pat Garrett. I planned this, this, this trip, so definitely I will try to uh, find a journalist who yeah. are over there who can help me with something. When you give that version, it sounds very straightforward, but the version in your book sounds a little more... Yeah, but, you know, it's, I mean, uh, it's uh, more probable that I will come to, that I will go to Uganda, and it's uh, very rare that Ugandan journalists are coming to Poland, so <laughs> I'm using them. Of course I'm using them, and it cost me nothing. It should cost me at least something, a dinner, a lunch, or a salary for uh, or doing a, uh, research. Or you know, assisted in reporting byline. Or right, right. I agree with you, but uh, it's very unjust word, yeah. journalist. And the people, the local journalists who are hired by the representatives of the bigger, bigger uh, media, uh, I don't know if they are aware how much they are used by us or by them 
because I do not consider myself uh, and my newspaper and Polish press agency that I work for now uh, that we are a part of this elephants of the international media. We are not Reuters, we are not New York Times. Um, yeah, I mean, they are fixers for us. They are translator for us. They are teacher for us. And they are the people who stay in their own countries when we leave. So they pay the price very often for our experience, common experience. And we very rarely or never think about them that uh, if they help us, uh, our duty is to try to help them if they are in the trouble. Um, it's very difficult and it's tough, but without their help, without their assistance, I think that our job would be more difficult. Yeah. How many days, how many weeks you will get for one travel to Iraq or Afghanistan? Right. And how many days you have to lose in Iraq, in Afghanistan or Uganda to find the proper person to talk? Um, so they are the first fixers and first fact checkers because we are coming to these faraway countries with our knowledge, mm -hmm. with our experience. But we need someone who, who will make this correction, who will tell us how it is really on the ground. So they are they. Right. Yeah, it seems like you have these really compelling characters in the book, and then, and those are sort of your, your, your they form a, a maybe a primary narrative, and then your secondary narrative has the context from these journalists whom you work with, who then uh, themselves become characters. Let's talk about some of the, the compelling characters Samuel is one who was actually conscripted into the Lord's Resistance Army. He was kidnapped from his village. Tell us uh, a little bit of Samuel's story. Well, uh, Samuel is, uh, is, uh, is, uh, is a hero, but he was created. Uh, he's, I mean, he has parts of other Samuels. In, uh, yeah, in I was wondering why, why Samuel was a composite character. Is because that just to, to make one common thread through the book? First of all, it was necessary for me, well, I thought it's necessary to have one, one, one character, one child soldier who would tell the story. And the other problem was uh, difficulty to select one among dozens that I had a chance to make. So I decided for such a thing, uh, it's not maybe 100% according to the journalist rules, but I decided that it would be much better for the narration, for the book. Uh, it would be easier for me and maybe better to tell the whole story. It's not Samuel only, uh, Nora is also the my right. creation, and Jackson. Uh, in Jackson, local journalist is the same. And Jackson is a creation, not he's not only my other friends in Africa, in Jackson, I have also Chechen friends, Russian friends, Georgian, and the others, all the journalists who happened to help me during my trips because we worked the same way. So Samuel, uh, he's a representative of the children uh, who were kidnapped uh, in order to make them soldiers of Lord Resistance Army. The scenario was always the same. Uh, in the night, uh, the guerrillas uh, were attacking a village they were robbing uh, the villagers of their food and they were taking hostages, the children. Um, it was not an accident, it was planned action. They wanted the children to be taken to the bush, not the adults, because it was easier to 
make this brainwash to have uh, children made uh, to be made a, a soldier. Uh, and I, I, I was even told that uh, the best age for the children to be kidnapped, I mean, to, to the best age to be a future guerrilla was eight to 10 years. Uh, enough grown up, enough strong, but too little to understand the limits or the borderlines between the bad and the evil. So in the bush, they could be taught again uh, what is good and what is bad. Lord Resistance Army started as an ethnic army in northern Uganda dur during the civil war in the mid-80s. But then it uh, became a kind of political, religious, military sect. Uh, Joseph Kony, in the very beginning, he pretended that he fight to defend the Acholi, the, 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 the Acholi people from the northern Uganda against the government from Kampala. Uh, <coughs> but then it was the war for the war cause, I think. Who was, who was running Uganda when, when this? Uh, it started when Museveni took power in uh, Kampala in 1986. Before Museveni, it was two generals who were ruling very shortly in Uganda. And it happened that two of them were coming from Acholi people. Uh, and they came after Idi Amin and after Milton Obote, after very cruel civil wars in Uganda. So when uh, these two generals were overthrown by Museveni, and we, when Museveni and his countrymen from the south took power in Kampala, the people in the north and Acholi among them, uh, they feared that they would be punished for, for all the evil, evil things which were done to the southerners by the two generals. Uh, so they, ex they were expecting war, and the war came. Uh, but as I told you, the war was finished very quickly. I mean, the governmental army won, but Joseph Kony started to operate as a military, as a military sect. He didn't have, in my opinion, never had a political program. Of course, he was telling people that he wants to uh, reach Kampala and uh, start a new order in, in, in Uganda, but more, uh, he was rather a religious leader for uh, these young uh, children kidnapped. He was telling them about the Ten Commandments, uh, that he's a prophet sent by the God to, to, to rule not only northern Uganda and Uganda, but all the world. He was telling them what is good, what is bad. It was like a religion. And uh, the only way, th there was no other way for him, and he even didn't try to recruit uh, the soldiers, uh, like in other parts of Africa and other parts of the world. He, he was just kidnapping. Taking them. Yeah. Let me pause you there and give a little context. Idi Amin, whom you mentioned earlier, is a well-known uh, figure from Uganda in, in the West. There was the movie made about him. I don't know if you saw that, The Last King of Scotland. Um, Idi Amin has claimed that the British essentially forced him into into his service, the British Rifles or something like that. It was a sergeant. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, let's talk a little bit about the, the role that the British may have played in terms of playing up ethnic divisions. Uh, you touch on it a little bit in your book. Yeah, Just sure. Give us some context. I mean, on this that. is the history of Africa. 
there was there is no even today I would say the African state with the natural borders. All African states were <coughs> created by the European colonialists, except Ethiopia. Although Ethiopia was also, it's not complete. Eritrea is not a part of Ethiopia anymore. So it was a, it was more a, a spread of, of different peoples, different what we what we call yeah, tribes, um, and then the, the the borders were carved. In the territory was occupied by or taken by the European colonial power, and it was given the name, and then in the 60s it was given independence, and people who have very little common uh, became the citizens of the one of one state. And in Uganda, who were the favored uh, group uh, by the Uganda, British? Uganda, uh, British favored Norton people uh, for the army, uh, but the Southerners were ruling economy and politics. They were the leaders. Uh, so in, in when, uh, when Uganda became independent country, the first leader was Kabaka, the leader of Baganda, people from the south. And, but the prime minister was from the north. It was the result, before it was divide and rule, and then uh, the position in the government, it was the British idea that they should be shared among different groups in order to have kind of society. Uh, joined by these positions and interests. But it very quickly uh, appeared not only in Uganda, but in most, most, most of the African countries that uh, there is nothing that was joining them, just opposite. They were starting to fight. So the army dominated by the northerners were against the government, which was dominated by southerners. And then and again and again, uh, Idi Amin overthrew Kabaka, he brought the power for himself and he was from the north so then he had an uprising in the south. Uh, very complicated and very simple I would say. Uh, this is the history not only about, uh, not only history not only of uh, Uganda, there are very few African countries that uh, didn't that does not that they, that uh, do not have the experience of civil wars, coup d'etats, uh, rebellions, and so on. So one of the one of the points you made earlier was that you were surprised that that that, that video was going viral now, um, and that's because you reported this all a long time ago. The election that you were reporting on took place even before. I came to Uganda for a research for the book 2006. It was yes. the election time also in Uganda. But I was in Uganda also before in the 90s. I was fascinated uh, by Uganda from the very beginning. Uh, thanks to Idi Amin, of course, although it was the stereotype very who was created uh, in uh, Western media, Idi Amin, the real Idi Amin, was not the same person that uh, we have from the movies, from the books. I think all the reasons for his behavior was also different. Um, then it was Richard Kapuscinski who told me that he had a book. It, Idi Amin was supposed to be a third part of uh, his uh, books about the power. It was the emperor, Shahin Shah, and Idi Amin was supposed to be the third, but he never wrote this book. So I was very interested in Uganda. In the 90s when I was traveling to Congo, to Rwanda, I was trying to fix the strips to in order to spend at least, uh, at least a couple of days in Kampala and in Uganda. So I was writing about Lord Resistance Army uh, and about Uganda 
and uh, yeah, I was surprised not that the campaign started, but it started when the war is over in Uganda, and now figuring that Uganda is a country which is suffering a civil war, uh, it's not the case. The war is somewhere else, and Joseph Kony is not in Uganda since 2003, 2004. That was sort of the biggest mistake with the video was that it was... Yeah, but it was on the other hand, I was also uh, very critical, but on the other hand, it was not a journalist story, I would say. It was not a... It was not a journalist story. It was not a story to inform people about the details of the political situation of Uganda. I think that the reason, the target, that the reason for the campaign was the to, ma to, 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 made, uh, to make people aware of existence of such a uh, man like Joseph Conan that he's still I think still one of the video maker, one of the filmmakers of the video was uh, an evangelical Christian, I, I believe. Yeah, that's what I heard. So, mm -hmm. uh, um, so w I don't mean to jump forward too quickly, but w what is the status with Ugandan politics? I mean, if that's what the bi video's big failing was, was to sort of tell us what's going on now. Tell us what's going on well, now. Well, I mean, in Uganda, the life is stable, I would say. <laughs> they are progressing in the economy. The Kampala that I saw in the beginning of the 90s is not a Kampala today. It's a big city with big problems, normal problems like the big city has. Uh, the only problem, I would say, for Uganda, the big problem in politics is uh, President Museveni, who is ruling since 1986, he seems to want to rule forever. It's always happened, uh, or it's very often happened, uh, with the leaders who, 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 who ruled too long. Uh, they started. You, you sound like you liked him when he when he first came to power. Yeah, I like him still. I think that he was a very successful leader, and he made a lot of good things for Uganda. But he can lose all this stuff because the people will remember him not as a creator, but as a someone who didn't want to. To, to leave uh, government, who want to stay the president for, for, for life. So for the Ugandans who were born 20 years ago, Museveni is not a hero. They do not compare him with Obote, with Amin, with the failures. They see that the, in other, even African countries, the presidents are changing every five or four or 10 years, but they are changing. But and in Uganda is still the same guy who do all possible things not to lose any election. He changed the constitution, uh, so the people complain. And I think that this is the big problem for Uganda, for Museveni, for Ugandans, because Africa is changing and Uganda is changing. You have the free election in Kenya, and the, well, they ended in the violence, but still the leaders are forced to quit by the vote <coughs> of the people. And Ugandans are not that stupid. They see what is going on in the neighborhood, and they, they do not understand why they do not have the choice to select the leader. Mm. And uh, well, it's a it's a big mistake. And Museveni, I remember, I've been told about one of his visits to see Nelson Mandela, and uh, he was a favorite of Nelson Mandela. Nelson Mandela considered Museveni as an example of a good leader for Africa. And uh, Mandela was critical, and he was telling Museveni that he's ruling too long. And he was telling Mandela that he still has a lot of things to do. 
So he asked Museveni, Yoweri, how many years you are in power? He said 15. So if you are not able to do the things in 15 years, how many years you want, you will need to, to finish this stuff? But I think, well, the, 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 the power to be in the government, it's uh, like uh, narcotic things, I think. Uh, you got addicted, some people, and it's good to have this four years term, term five years term, not only for the people, for the citizens, but for the politicians as well. It's a, it's a, it's a treatment or um, safety rule not to get addicted to power. Yeah. Well, in the beginning, the, th the thing that you seemed to commend him for was his, his relationship with accountability. And specifically, how has that eroded over his... Pardon me? His, his you commended him for his relationship, positive relationship oh with yeah. accountability. Um, and it seems like that has eroded yeah. as he's stayed in power longer. Specifically, ha how has that happened? What are the, what are the laws that he's either def defying well, or... No, the, the only thing that the, the people complain uh, is that he's in power too long. He's not corrupted like other leaders. That, I mean, the pro corruption... I don't think that corruption in Uganda is a bigger problem than in other countries, not only in Africa. Uh, they are not political prisoners in Uganda. You have the free press in Uganda. But he behaved like the person who knows everything better. He's the only one who knows. And it's not the case. Uh, so this is the problem with Museveni, I think. He's blocking other people to, to compete with him. He said that in the first election he, he, he stood in, it was about 75% voted for him. And then and it was about 60 percent, mm -hmm. and then it was just over 50 percent. Um, is there someone you're seeing who who could challenge him? Well, there is only one person who is always his rival is uh, Kiza Besigye. But uh, this is also the this is the problem which arises from this political conflict. Museveni uh, doesn't want to have anyone standing against him, so he's trying uh, how to say. He doesn't want any rivals to appear um, even among his own party. And this is the best experience of the party in Uganda because it is ruling for more than 25 years. Uh, so the best people to succeed him, I think, they are from his own political party. But how can you have a challenger from, his, from your own political party? So he's stopping these challenges. And uh, the people from the opposition, maybe they are too long in the opposition to be prepared well to govern the country. Uh, every election, whenever the elections are happening in Uganda, there are talks about the splits among the ruling party and uh, possible uh, rivals uh, of Museveni. But finally, uh, they decide that they will support Museveni because if they will be if there will be the division in the political party ruling. They, they, they risk to lose the power at all. So. I don't know what is the future of Uganda and what will do Yoveri Museveni during another election. I'm afraid that he will try to run again. Um, so when your book came out, it came out in 2009 originally, yeah, and probably. it was translated mm -hmm. just just out yeah. in the U.S. February, mm -hmm. February. Where else is it coming out? Pardon? Where else is it coming out? Uh, it came out in uh, Germany two years ago. and. Is to be published in Italy. Uh, 
this year. Um, I don't know if we're how we are on time. Almost eight. Ten. ten. Almost eight. Um, so let's just let's just very quickly talk about some a few of the other characters in your book, which I think were were, were interesting <coughs> characters. Um, we talked a little bit about Coney's belief in sort of religious ideas. Um, tell me a little bit about the history of this. These these charismatic guerrilla leaders, um, maybe on whose shoulders Joseph Coney is standing, like Alice uh, Laquena. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, I met Alice Laquena, who created uh, this army. It was the not Lot Resistance Army. It was a Holy Spirit movement, and it was from the very beginning religious army. Alice Laquena claimed that she was possessed by the spirit of Laquena, which was translated into Holy Spirit. It was this point that the local beliefs. Uh, joined the Christianity. Uh, so uh, it was said that Alice Laquena was possessed by the Holy Spirit. It's very complicated and it was not easy. That's why I decided to write about this in the book and not like my journalistic reports because um, it is not easy for the journalists to write about the ghosts and spirits in the news report and claim that they are the reasons for the conflict. But when I spent two in 2006, when I spent more time in northern Uganda, I find out that you know, there are the things that really matters. Uh, the people believe like this. And you have to take in your account these beliefs, uh, how the conflict started, and what are the way for the reconciliation or for any way out. And um, the local beliefs were very important, and they were used by the, not but Alice Laquena, but especially by Joseph Coney to, to do the brainwash, to brainwash the children kidnapped for the, for the guerrilla army. Uh, so dozens of things, the, the, the belief in the, um, power of the natures when they cross the river, then do some rituals, uh, power of mountain. Wait, yeah, let's stop on that for a second. How did Alice Laquina lose her animating spirit or her... Because she lost the war. I mean, <laughs> when she started... But the story was, was something to do with disrespect for the river. Yeah, th that's what... It was said that she lost the war because she disrespected the river when she... W they, 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 she and her soldiers were crossing the uh, rivers uh, directing on Kampala because they were very close to Kampala and Alice Lakwena was very close to reach the capital and maybe even to win the war with the governmental army but uh, she lost the big battle uh, close to Kampala and it was the explanation uh, of the leaders of the guerrilla army that we lost the war, we lost the battle because of Alice Laquena, because she disrespected uh, the power of the spirits. I think that they wanted to get rid of her also, so they accused her of doing evil things. Uh, it was easy way to get rid of her, that she's not, she's not possessed anymore, uh, that Laquena le left her because she, was, she dis disrespected even 
Laquena himself. Uh, so she, she, she lost the leadership of the movement, and then the others came. You make it clear that there's a very uh, sort of severe difference in how the world is explained in the north versus in the capital, and it's just, it comes up through as a, just a question of urbanity and sophistication. You have the two journalists in one scene. You have your fixer, Jackson, uh, explaining that the spirits are real that change Coney's personality. How many spirits supposedly animate oh, him? Oh, dozens. These <laughs> are just his moods, basically. <laughs> um, but he has thousands of spirits which animate him. And then Eddie, uh, the other journalist, who's much better known, I take it, uh, he's who's based in Kampala. He's very westernized. And he <laughs> <laughs> What's his explanation for the spirits? And the well, I think that... He, he blames it on Sudanese intelligence, essentially. Yeah, because yeah. Because it was... I mean, it d I think, my, I suspect that uh, his attitude toward the ghost depended on, depended on with whom he were talking. If he was talking to me, uh, he was telling, he was explaining the war with the political forces, intelligence, and, uh, I mean, he was explaining the conflict with the categories from our... Uh, part of the world, and well, I believe that he did not believe in the spirits as a main reason for the war, and the main um, help. In that in that context, it was the reason that Coney was sort of invincible. He knew everything from the spirits, and and Eddie just cuts through it and says, actually, it was Sudanese. It was Sudanese intelligence. Yeah. Now you said something about this difference having to do with our world and theirs. Let me read you one quote, if I may. President George W. Bush told Palestinian ministers that God had told him to invade Afghanistan and Iraq <laughs> and create a Palestinian state, a new BBC series reveals. In elusive peace, Israel... Again, it's a Sudanese intelligence. <laughs> <laughs> the, the source, Nabil Shah, says, this is on the BBC website, President Bush said to all of us, I'm driven with a mission from God. God would tell me, George... Go and fight those terrorists in Afghanistan. <laughs> and I did. And then God would tell me, George, go and end the tyranny in Iraq. And I did. <laughs> uh, and now again, I feel God's words coming to me. Go get the Palestinians their state and get the Israelis their security and get peace in the Middle East. And by God, I'm going to do it. Uh, <laughs> I can only applaud. <laughs> Well, it's probably important to note that Poland sent troops uh, for the Iraq war, is that right? Yeah. How many were sent? About two or three thousand. And did they stay very long? Whole war to the end. Now we have troops in Afghanistan as well. Yeah. Um, well, I just wanted to, to, to offer those little bits of context. It's a wonderful book. It's very, very exciting to read. And, and I, I wanted to add to those places where you did the same thing by showing the dynamic between the journalists. I mean, there's just so much sort of sensational reporting in there, and then it gets into the spirits, but then you sort of show the contrast between the different beliefs, and I want to commend that, and uh, once again, welcome you to Brooklyn and Pen World Voices, and I think we're going to open this up now to audience questions. And if you would wait for me to come to you with a microphone so that everyone un can understand you, and for those of you who speak uh, Polish and English, if I can prevail upon you to ask your question in English. We would appreciate it, us English speakers. have absolutely no Polish, so that's okay, fine with me. I wanted to ask you, you had said that 
there was a difficulty to select one among the dozens of child soldiers as the main character for the book, and that's what results in your composite. Could you uh, tell us specifically what that difficulty or difficulties were? Was it that the biographies didn't match up in any one individual, the points you wanted to hit, or you felt bad picking just one? Or I'm, I'm interested in, in the specifics I've of I've had two kinds of problems. First was the difficulty to select the biography. Um, tragic things happened to all of them and uh, I wanted I was looking for one character for one boy or one girl who could be a character for this book and but selecting one I had to disqualify others so what about the things that happened to them they were very important, and I wanted to show all these things. I didn't want to have a dozen of characters in these books. Um, so this was first reason. And another one was very personal, I would say. Uh, I didn't want to select one of them. I think that I'm afraid that I became too close to them. And for me, to making this selection was uh, not a sin, but uh, I thought it was wrong to select one of them only. But main reason was the biographies. I wanted to have all biographies in one. Thank you. You said that you spent a lot of time in Uganda for many, many years. What kind of language challenges did you have? Do they all speak English in the north and the south? Did you have translators with you all the time? How did you learn so much information with the language challenges? Uh, I, the information I got is the result of more than 20 years of interest. I'm reading for 20 years everything possible about Africa, all the news reports, uh, the newspapers who are now available on the internet, uh, the books. Uh, they speak English, uh, so I can communicate with them. But I do not speak any local languages, so I need a translator if I go to some villages. Uh, even with the translator, it's not the same conversation. I remember in South Africa, when I was taken by one of my friends to go to Zulu, Zululand to, to, to interview one of the Zulu leader, Mangosutu Butelezi. And after this interview, this journalist took me to his uh, village. And he introduced me to the chief of the village. And we had a conversation, whole night almost. And, but we were speaking in English. And I was really happy with this conversation and this Zulusness and the culture and the histories, anecdotes. And I thanked my friend from Johannesburg for introducing, for taking me to, to his village and to, for introducing me and for having this conversation. And I told him that it was great. And he said, yeah, it was quite good. I said, how oh, it was quite good? It was great. I mean, great it would be if, he, if you would understand Zulu. <laughs> so, you know, even speaking about the same, I mean, you have to speak your first language. English is not my first language. Uh, language. So to really understand each other, uh, especially when we talk about such a things like beliefs, spirits, emotions, first language is really very helpful. So even with the translator, it's not the same. So I, I, I realize how much thing, how many things, how many stories 
I lost because of uh, because uh, because I do not speak the local languages. But how many languages you can speak? Thank you. Um, everything you're talking about here is very close to my heart because I spent three years in Uganda. I actually just got back two weeks ago. But I wanted to ask you about your choice for the story uh, for your book because you mentioned yourself, you'd been to Uganda so many times, you were there in the 90s. You speak a little bit. You, um, you spent so much time in Uganda in the 90s and you've been witnessing the transformation the country's been going through. So why did you pick a story that to me propels this image of Africa that we in the North like to portray while the Africa is trying to get rid of the story of child soldiers, the rebels, the guerrilla war, which at that time when you were writing the book was coming to an end, at least in Uganda. So why pick that story and not something else from Uganda? Well, for me, that it is easy exp explanation because I was so occupied in the 90s with the former Soviet Union and then Afghanistan that the first books were, were about these countries. I decided to write Night Wanderers not because of the political calendar of Africa or uh, Uganda. Uh, it was my, I thought about this for many years, but I didn't get enough material. I didn't have a chance to spend the time in Gulu uh, for research. So it just happened that after Afghanistan, after, Central, after uh, Caucasus, uh, I started to be interested more in Africa again. And Uganda, I don't know. First I thought that I will write a book about the child soldiers from Uganda, from Congo, uh, from Sudan, Liberia. Uh, I decided to start with Uganda because there were already books published about the child soldiers in Liberia. And then when I arrived in Gulu, I realized that it's impossible to write a book about the child soldiers because there is no way to communicate with them. It's a language problem, but first of all, the problem is how to communicate with, uh, between the adult person like me and the children who have very adult experience. And what, how, how, how can they tell me? So I decided that the only way I can write this book is, is about this problem of, um, I would say, and they said about the miscommunication. Um, if I got your point properly, is you, you ask me why I wrote a book about the child soldiers when the Africa is trying to get rid of this phenomenon? No. And the image. Right, right. I agree with you. I mean, this is the problem of our journalists. Uh, it's not us who made the choices to go there and there. Uh, we go where we are sent. Uh, usually. And the truth is also, not only in Poland, I think in US media the same, that the medias are more interested in the horrors than in the romantic comedies. So we, on one hand, personally, I, I'm one of my main reasons to be a journalist, to write about Africa, was to kill the stereotype of Africa functioning in Poland for many years. The stereotype with, which tells that Africa is suffering on AIDS, all possible diseases, that it's murdering itself in the ethnic wars and hunger and all this stuff. And I wanted to write that Africa, that, that such a things are happening in Africa, but not all Africa is like this. But when they were sending me to Africa, they were sending me not to Ghana to write about the progress 
economical progress. But they would send me to Congo when another war started there. In Uganda, they didn't want to send me in Uganda at all because the Uganda was a progressive country. My newspaper wanted me to spend more time in Sudan or in, on in Rwanda or in Somalia. Uh, so this is, I wouldn't use the word tragedy, it's irony, I would say. Uh, and it's also written in our, um, in our job, in our profession, that we are trying to write stories that would tell the truth about the continent, about the country, about the whole truth, but, and to kill the stereotype. But on the other hand, the selection of the subjects of our journalist trips uh, the result is quite opposite. And my book about Uganda appeared in Poland in 2009 when the war in Uganda was over. I will tell you more. My book about Georgia appeared in Poland in mid-90s and the people are again calling me if it is safe to go to Georgia. <laughs> but what can I do? <laughs> I, appreciate I should write another book about Georgia, how it is progressing maybe. I don't know. <laughs> I have two questions. The first one, um, this was something that was mentioned in the beginning, but I don't think you had a chance to respond to it. Could you please respond to Mamdani's critique about the, the involvement of the West in, in Africa and African problems? And um, I'm just I'm curious what you think about, about what he's been writing about that lately. And the second question that I have is um, I'd like to know what you think about the um, International Criminal Court um, campaign and their their attempt to arrest Kony and what you think mm -hmm. in general about their involvement in Uganda and in this case? Well, I, I support only the idea to capture criminals and to punish them. Uh, I don't, I wouldn't say it's very effective, <laughs> this campaign. The only people who, are, uh, who were arrested and sent to hack uh, they are the people who lost political battles. So it's um, for the other ones. Uh, the lesson is that you cannot lose your political battle because then you will be arrested and sent to to Haar. Uh, Jean-Pierre Bemba, the guy who, who was a vice president of Congo and then he was a candidate in the election. He lost the election. So he was arrested and sent to Congo, uh, to Haar. If he won, in Haar we would have Joseph Kabila, I think. Uh, so for them, they will fight as hard as it is possible not to lose power. The same is with uh, President of Sudan. Uh, the process of uh, Charles Taylor, uh, who, was, who will be sentenced, I guess, because of the crimes committed in Sierra Leone, not by the International Criminal Court, but by the court created to, 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 to judge the crimes in Sierra Leone. It's also a lesson for Omar al-Bashir because he's safe when he's a president. But Charles Taylor, before there was no former president uh, sentenced, so it's also the lesson for him. About uh, Western involvement in Africa, I think that we are trying very hard to do the good things. Our problem is that we do not think about asking, consulting the local people, is this really what they want? And we are doing this, uh, I think that one of the reasons that we are trying to help 
is to make ourselves more happy. That we are a good people if we SMS on this and this number or we uh, send some email. Uh, for us, it's, uh, it's a proof that we are helping, so we are good. Uh, I do not have too big experience observing humanitarian activity in Africa, but I had the experience observing what was going on with this help in Afghanistan, and it's such a loss of money and opportunity. The result is just opposite. And in Afghanistan, it was complete failure, complete failure. Uh, I think that the pro I talked with many engineers and NGOs, workers in Africa and elsewhere, and I believe them that they, they are coming to these countries and they want to share the best things that we have in the West, democracy, for example, or anything. But not everyone is prepared to receive such a gift. And you have to take care, you have to think about this. That doesn't mean that they are worse, that they are not prepared, but how to say, if it is the same, if you will offer me the car fully automatic, computerized, and I'm, I, I'm not prepared to, 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 to ride this car properly. I think that you know, we are not thinking, there's, uh, we, there is a lack of reflection in the West uh, when we are going to help other countries. We do not even think, because sometimes help hurts. If you go, if you give grain to someone, you do not realize that you are sometimes killing agriculture in this country. And can, I, can I try to connect the two the two questions? Um, Mamdani himself is against the International Criminal Court because he says it can virtually never prosecute, for instance, <coughs> Westerners. Um, do you believe that the Bush and his coalition, which included Polish soldiers, do you believe that they committed war crimes in uh, in Iraq? Well, there are war crimes in Iraq and in Afghanistan. There's no doubt about this. You read it in the newspaper. So Mamdani's critique was that despite that, there's virtually no way that the way it's set up with with well, the U.S. is not a part of international criminal courts, so nobody from U.S. can be uh, charged. I think. Uh, by this court. Uh, yes, the impression in Africa is that this international criminal court is occurred to judge Africans only because there are only Africans in high, in Hague awaiting their processes, their trials. You have uh, former president of Ivory Coast, many rebels. Now, if Connie would be captured, would be another. I don't know if there are any, how to say this, wanted lists for leaders from other continents. I mean, procedurally, it can either come from the country itself or the Security Council. Either way, the powers, the, the, the big Western powers and Russia and China are basically exempt. So that was his critique. Yeah. Um, but let's see if we can make some room for any other questions. I'm curious about how you see the role of journalists. Um, when I was listening to you, two journalists came to my mind, American journalists, they travel a lot, Thomas Friedman and Nicholas, uh, yeah, Christoph. One looks microscopically, another from the bird view. These two fellows are trying to inform American 
public about what goes on. And they influence American public politicians. You are writing for Polish audience. You want Polish audience to know. The influence, the feedback, if you wish, is probably non-existent. Those are the questions. Mm -hmm. okay. so, so how do you see the role of a journalist? Well, I always see, saw the role of journalists as a kind of messenger. Uh, at the beginning of my career, I had the impression that I was the messenger who was bringing information about the outside world. But it was the time when I was traveling with the sat phone or without the sat phone, when I sending the story, I had to use the local telephone booths or telexes. Uh, so it's like it was travelers, especially uh, for such a countries like Congo, Sudan, or Afghanistan, without the uh, communication equipment. Uh, it was really uh, strange and difficult journeys. But I got the impression that I was coming back with, the, with something to share with my readers. Uh, recently, I think that the only role for us journalists is to make a selection of the information. There is a reverse of information falling on us. Uh, so our job is to select what is important, what has any meaning, or, or what is just the rubbish. Try to analyze, to help our readers to find out sense in this rivers, oceans of information. And I think it's the only role for us, because in the modern world, uh, it's impossible to be on time. Uh, I mean, you have always local people who can tell you something, who can uh, do the story for any newspaper in the world. Um, but that's how I see the, the, the role of the journalist, the selection. We are the helpers. And you ask, you, t you mentioned this two ways of doing journalism. I, I tried always to be this microscope. Uh, it is because of maybe my friendship with Ryszard Kapuściński who was doing this kind of journalism. He was a guru for me and I try was trying to observe how he's working. But uh, I think that doing this micro-observation, you can also uh, show something bigger. And this is, I think, that the most important thing in this journalism that I'm trying to do. Thank you very much. Gentlemen, thank you both for such a wonderful thank conversation. You. Thank you a lot.